0: Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out, starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaaf.
1: 1940, after Germany invaded Norway, a 22-year-old named Jan Balsrud escaped into Sweden, where he would be trained in espionage by the British officials. He acted as a courier between Stockholm, Sweden, and Oslo, Norway, but was caught by Swedish authorities and convicted of espionage. He served three months of a five-month sentence and was expelled from the country. His journey over the next six months took him all around the world, beginning in Russia, through Bulgaria, Egypt, India, South Africa, United States, Newfoundland, and finally England. There he would be trained by the British Army in special operations. The objective would be to disrupt the Germans and provide a place for the Allies to get a foothold in Scandinavia in an effort to liberate Norway. That was the easy part of his journey. The next chapter of his story would last nine weeks, cover 80 miles, but would test him to the very limits of human endurance and threaten the lives and families of anyone who came into contact with him.
0: Hi, and welcome back to the Missing Chapter podcast. I'm Phil Hornder here with Phil Schoff. Phil, we just uh, celebrated our six-month anniversary doing the Missing Chapter podcast this past April 3rd. This is episode 29 already, which is hard to believe. Uh, We have a very special guest back with us today. He was with us uh, on episode eleven, which, looking back now at the numbers, has become one of our one of our most popular episodes.
2: I think it's because it was so different than what we've done in the past, and there's elements that that really we've never included. Like we you know, we've never even thought to have an actual actual live instrument on the recording. So I mean, it was an honor to have Tim here
0: um, during episode
2: eleven and Tim Field, it's an honor to have you here today.
1: It's great to be back.
2: thanks, guys.
0: Yeah, And after the intro, um, you know, Tim came in today with a with a topic. He has shared none of this with us in, in classic Missing Chapter fashion. We are super excited. He's got us hooked after the intro, and we're excited. Yeah, I, Tim, I think
2: after that intro, if, you, if you've ever seen a good trailer to a movie, that is a perfect example.
1: You got me hooked. I am curious. So, Take it away whenever you're ready. All right, you got it. So March 29th. 1943, Jan Balsrud and three other commandos joined an eight-man crew on board the Bratholm packed with eight tons of explosives, weapons, food, and supplies for their mission to Tromsoy, Norway. Now, this is 350 miles inside the Arctic Circle. They were to train civilians in sabotage tactics and attack a German-held airfield called Bartafus and allow the Allies to land to start an offensive to ultimately liberate Norway. The four commandos were to be dropped off in a very remote part of the country, north of the city, and it was an extremely difficult place to get to. They had to travel a thousand miles from Shetland, Scotland, in a a single-cylinder engine boat only capable of eight knots through the stormy North Atlantic. Sweden was neutral, so you couldn't stage there and bring the supplies over the mountains, and in the winter months, even the waning winter months, that would have been impossible. So with very limited intelligence, the commandos approached the coast, hoping to fool the Germans into thinking they were just a local fishing boat. There was a plan that if they were discovered and had to scuttle the ship, one of three different fuses would be lit. Five minute, a 30 second and an instantaneous would be lit and one by any one of the team. Which one they would light depended on whether or not they thought they would be able to escape. They spotted a patrol boat going and decided to go further north to make landfall. But for now, at least their disguise seemed to work. The island they chose was called Rubensoy, and the place that they would land was called Toftenfjord, about 30 miles north of the city of Tromsoy. Toftenfjord was a quiet cove and gave them cover from being discovered by ships at sea and patrol aircraft flying along the coast. There was a shopkeeper on the southern part of the island that would, according to the British intelligence at the time, be willing to help the team in storing their supplies after they landed. Three of the men made their way to the shop on the southern part of the island in a small motorboat. There, they made their initial contact and carefully engaged the shop owner in conversation. However, after revealing that they were from England, the shopkeeper let them know that the original owner had died just over a few months ago. And get this, he had the same exact name, so they didn't bother to change the name of the store. So what are the chances? It's its its unbelievable. So now they've realized they've made a mistake. They don't know if this guy can be trusted. Um, and they're not blaming the guy. This is his, his livelihood there. And if the Germans found out that he had helped them, you know, he, he would be killed. It's
0: amazing to me though. And I don't, I don't want to interrupt, but you lay out a plan so specific and detailed. Yeah. I have to imagine that any, any element like this is going to throw you off your game a little bit. Uh, Completely.
1: You you, you have to hope everything goes perfectly. Uh, well, it doesn't. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately. Um, the, the Norwegian team realized we're in trouble. They made, they, even though they made them promise not to tell anybody, they were on their guard. All night through the morning, they were ready for something to happen. Nothing happened. But early in the afternoon, all of a sudden, this German patrol boat comes into the cove. The leader of the team, a guy named Sigard Eskeland, realized right away, there's, there's no getting out. We have to abandon ship and gave the order to light the five-minute fuse. Right away, the Germans start firing on them. Most of the crew escaped on a lifeboat and headed towards shore. But Eskalind, uh, Blindheim, and Jan waited behind the Bratholm in their lifeboat, counting down the time before it would explode. So they're just hiding out behind the ship. With just a minute and a half, they shoved off towards the shore. The German, pull, the German boat pulled up alongside the Bratholm when the first explosion ignited, but it failed to set off all the explosives. And that gave the Germans time to back away, And then the Bratholm exploded into a massive fireball. The blast knocked Eskalen overboard. But Jan was able to get him back in the boat. But now the Germans' full attention was on the three men. With machine gun bullets whizzing past them, the boat splittered with bullet holes. It suddenly erupted, being hit by the three-pound deck gun. So with 70 yards yards yet to go, Jan, Blindheim, Eskalen swam to the shore. Now remember, we're in the Arctic. It's it's freezing water. Uh, And they make it to the shore. Germans are firing at them the whole time. When they get to shore, uh, Per Blindheim was struck in the head with a bullet. The commander, Escalon, was laying down on the rocks. And Jan called to them, but nobody answered. So he sees the Germans, Jan sees the Germans had reached the shore and were coming towards them. And then there was another group uh, heading up the slope to try and cut off any retreat of anyone trying to go up over the hill. He had to re- react quickly as bullets were ricocheting all around him. There was a gully that ran down dividing the hill and had two large boulders in it. The Germans had to go through the gully and Jan knew that they would be out of sight for a short time. When this happened, he made his move and ran to a mound of covered in birch trees. He ran around the right side, hoping the Germans would not come around the same way and eventually crossed their tracks and started heading up the gully. But it wasn't long before the Germans realized what was going on. They're calling out orders for him to stop and they were shooting at him. He reached one of the the boulders, drew his automatic pistol and picked out a spot six yards away that he decided that's where he's going to start defending himself, shooting at the Germans. They're struggling up the hill and he could tell that the lead officer was wearing a Gestapo uniform. All four men were gasping for breath, yelling orders, telling him to surrender. Jan waited six yards away, takes aim, shoots. Nothing happens. He quickly ejects two rounds. Points the gun again, but now the German officer is three paces away from him. Shoots twice, hitting, the, killing the Gestapo officer. Shoots another time, wounding one of the other soldiers. And the others turn tail. They, they run and start ducking for cover. Jan sees his opportunity. He continues up the hill. It was tough going because he had lost one of his boots and socks in the water. So he's climbing up this hill. He's got one rubber boot, one bare foot. He's climbing up, falling down, trying to get up, finally reaches the second boulder and um, is now able to uh, find some cover. And he can look down and see that the um, rest of his crew were all captured. They're all laying, the Germans had them laying down and there was no escaping for them. As he's making that his way up that last part of the hill, the Germans on the boat, and on the shore are firing at him like crazy, all right? When he turns around and sees his partners, his men laying down there, that's when he realizes he sees all the crimson spots in his tracks. His right toe has been shot off, oh okay? But it's freezing, so the blood, it's not bleeding that badly. But he's still got to make his escape, all right? So he decides he needs to head to the um, south end of the island, He knows his tracks would be easy to follow, so he tries to leave false trails, doubling back on himself, going in different directions, makes it down to the shore. He sees the shop where the shopkeeper was that Eskalind had visited the day before. Um, He also saw two small hay sheds that would be a good place to get warm, but they were really obvious hiding spots. Mm. He made his way along the shore painfully, walking over the rocks, but at least he was not leaving a trail for the Germans to follow. As he worked over the situation, he realized that there was no place for him to go on the island that would not be found by the Germans. Now, he's looking out into Vargason Sound, and he notices that there are several rocky outcroppings, some as big as half an acre, and he begins to see a glimmer of hope. He can swim to the larger mounds and hide there, but that meant once again entering this frigid water but it's his only chance. So he wades into the water, swims the 50 yards, climbs over the rocky island, and he sees a small peat bank there that he can hide behind and keep moving to try and prevent frostbite from setting in even more. He takes his boot off, puts the sock on the barefoot, and then puts his boot back on. At dusk, the first troops appear on the shore, and Jan really realizes quickly that the intelligence reports he had read were accurate. These soldiers were of low grade. We're in the northernmost part of Norway. There's not a lot going on there, so they're not going to have, you know, the, the, the top-notch soldiers there. Um, he could tell that they were scared because they would just shoot at the slightest noise. And never once did they use their flashlights to look out into the sound where he was hiding. But the problem is he's out in the open. He's soaking wet. There's nowhere for him to go he's, he's got to find something to do now he knows there's another place called Hirsoy on the other side he has no idea how far away it is it's 220 yards oh, my so he has to swim another 220 yards through the arctic water all right he gets the other side he's exhausted his body is cramping he pulls himself ashore the chances of this happening are unbelievable but there's two young girls there now, he knows how to speak to them because when he was young, his when he was 16, his mom passed away, and he had a big responsibility raising his sister, who was only eight at the time. So he knew how to calmly speak to these young girls to convince them to, to help him. So they take him to their house where their mothers, Fru Peterson and Fru Idripsen, brought him in, helped him recover from the day's trials. And of all the people that helped him on his journey, these people were the bravest because they were right there where it happened. They heard the explosions. They heard the gunshots throughout the day. They knew the risks of helping this guy, but they still did it. He told them that if the Germans questioned them to make sure that he, that he threatened them at gunpoint, and with this, he pulls out his pistol to show them, look, you know, I'm serious about this. You, you have to sh- tell them that you were threatened. And this is a dilemma he would struggle with throughout his whole escape. Was it right for him to put innocent families and children's lives at risk to save his own life? Before morning, the oldest son of Fru Preterson returned home. Having been informed of the situation, it was decided to take Jan in a rowboat to Ringvisoy, another island, where they knew of another man that would be able to help him. His name was Jansen. He had a permit that allowed him to travel through uh, the islands. Okay? His wife served as the midwife for the local area. He didn't stay there long, though, because Jan could imagine having to shoot it out with the Germans in a maternity ward. It's not a Not a good place to to be. So he makes the decision to go to the southern part of the island. It's about 30 miles. Takes him four days to do it. So he's out in the open for four days. He was able to stay at two houses along the way, but finally comes across a guy named Einar Sorensen, who's the telephone and telegraph operator. This guy takes him in, no questions asked, even though the Germans are housed just a mile away from his house. But again, he can't stay here long because it's the telegraph office. There's going to be people coming in and out all, all the time. And, and, you know, it's, it's a small town. Like Canada, Harry's a small town, something happens, the word's going to get, get out really, really quick. So, um, and his father, a 72 year old man named Bernhard, row him 10 miles across another fjord in stormy weather. All right. Um, to, to get him to the other side of the fjord, and they're telling him about another guy um, that's going to be able to help him out—a guy named Lockardson. And sure enough, he's able to rest there, get some warm food, and a pair of skis. Now he's only got about 50 miles to go, but he's rested, he's got food, he's got a pair of skis. For a Norwegian traveling that distance, that's not a big—that's not a big problem. So he's skiing down. Uh, the road, and he's aware that there's going to be roadblocks. He's able to avoid them easily, going up into the woods, going through the barbed wire fences, but he's coming down the road. He's going pretty fast, comes around a turn and 50 yards away is a group of German soldiers walking across the road, and now he's suddenly keenly aware that on his shoulder is the word Norway written in English. Oh. Oh. The Germans are coming out from breakfast. They, they think nothing of it. They, they part ways and let him go through.
0: Okay. I, you know, just... let's take a breather here because we're we're less than 14 minutes in. And first, Tim, I want to commend you. I love having you on the show because there's a way that you tell the story. It's almost like we're entranced. We're just sitting here listening. (laughs) I don't want to say anything and I'm just enjoying it along with everybody else. But in just a matter of a few days, what this individual went through, I personally can't get over my mind keeps going back to the fact that he's had a, a, a toe blown off and he must be freezing. Like you're talking about 200 plus yards in in Nordic uh, water. That alone, I think we have to focus on the physical elements that this that this individual is enduring. And I love the fact, by my own admission, I'm not as well versed as what was to what was going on during World War Two in this area of Europe. So I'm glad we have a, a story like this to really
1: bring to light the sacrifices that these people were making. It's a great point. You know, it truly makes you remember why it was a world right. mm-hmm. war. A lot of people think of the European ca- campaign, the Pacific campaign, but there was a lot more going on. I had never heard this story. I grew up with my father, always watching documentaries and reading about world war two. Mm-hmm. It was a big interest of his, but I had never heard the story.
2: And there, there's so many elements of the story. I think the, the first part
1: is when you started talking
2: about the fuse, because it, you have to make that decision, that faithful decision. You said there was yeah. a thirty-second timer, a yeah. one-minute, five minutes. Is that what it was? It was an instant, instant
1: five-second.
2: I think, and then the five-minute. All right, that's incredible. So, and if you think back to that time period, it wasn't like it was a clock timer, which it was an exact five minutes. Right. It was an exact five seconds. It was an exact right. minute. You know, at, at that time period, you had you had these fuses in which, obviously, you would test the length of the fuse, and that would dictate the the right. length of time. Right. But what ends up happening is you might have a, a decent spark. You might not have a good spark. Right. That spark will dictate the time. So you in your head are thinking, I know I set it for five minutes, but that could be two and a half. <laughs> exactly. That could be three. It's, and they're waiting there. And you're just waiting. Yeah. So while you're waiting for that thing to explode, you don't know if it's going to go off two minutes after, two minutes before. And it could give up your position. It could it could destroy you and your men early when you actually maybe had a chance to survive That element right there, I know I mentioned the fact that this was kind of like your intro was kind of like that movie trailer. This is one of those movies where it doesn't need the first five minutes of just you know character development. You just dove right in. This is like action-packed as soon as
0: you get into it. Yeah. And as bad as, as his luck has been at points, he's come
1: across some people who are really willing to help. Absolutely. And some good luck, too. Yeah, because there was definitely people who were Nazi sympathizers. Yeah, but you, he didn't know who that was. He right. he was not from that area, so he doesn't know.
2: That's that's amazing. And and I, I have think, no
1: idea where this is going either, right? it's I
0: know. Like I don't know where this story is going, but I'm anxious to find out. And I think there's a there's an element here to this story
2: too, where you kind of forget that you you know you like you said you had a plan. You have mm-hmm. a plan in step of this is the way the mission should play out, and then you have to give up that you have to give up your own will and say, what are my options? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to go back in that frigid water. I've just experienced that a couple times. But he had no other options. Oh, I got to go back in. Yeah. you know, I, I think there's an element where you have to make the decision. I want to do something, but now I have to give up that will
1: completely and just figure out what my options are. And, and it took him a little while before he was able to finally realize my mission is a complete failure. Mm-hmm. I now have to survive and escape. Yeah. And, and that's that's where he's at right now. Mm-hmm. So he continues on the road. The Germans had parted, didn't stop him at all. He sees the intersection that he needs to turn. But there's three Germans and a civilian standing there. Right before where they're standing, there's an open gate. He cuts through the gate, and right away, they know this guy's up to no no good because he's running away from us. Yeah. They start shooting at him. But this time, he's not scared because, again, Norwegians are known for their skiing ability, right? He's got a pair of skis, and it doesn't take him long before he's out of reach of, of these guys. He climbs 3,000 feet where he finally takes a rest, okay? Okay. Now he's been going for about 20 miles just for today when, he's, when he started on the skis. But now the weather starts to change. A storm quickly develops, limiting his vision to less than five yards. The only way he kept his direction was by feeling the wind on the right side of his body. But it wasn't long before he couldn't feel anything on the right side of his body. You know, he's 3,000 feet up it's in the Arctic. It's absolutely freezing. So then the next thing he does is he packs snowballs throws them if he hears it lands he, he knows he can he can go straight oh my right? gosh but his body is starting to freeze up and he knows that he can't he can't stay out there all night finally finds a rock that has a little crevice underneath it and he can crawl underneath there and stay he doesn't know how long he slept wakes up he can't tell if it's day or night the storm is still raging he was hoping to wait it out but the storm is still going so he continues skiing. But all of a sudden, as luck would have it, the snow gives away. Now he's in an avalanche. (laughs) Okay. But again, luck is on his side, right? Because he gets buried up to his neck, which saves his life because it keeps his body from being exposed to the elements. Doesn't break any bones. Right. And in fact, his broken and crushed skis were found the summer following and are in a museum museum. Now oh in Norway, but he's lost everything. He's lost all of his supplies. He, he, he's got nothing and he's completely disoriented because he was hit in the head. So somehow he gets out of this compacted snow from the avalanche. He's wandering around. It's been four days that he's been out in the elements and he literally stumbles into a house, finds the door, bursts in. And here's Hannah, a woman named Hannah Peterson, who's having a uh, dinner with her two boys. This guy's been, like I said, he's been exposed for four days. He's a frightening sight to behold. Upon entering, he collapses on the floor. His hair and uh, beard are frozen solid. His feet were covered with compacted snow. His hands were frozen and discolored. His eyes were tightly shut because now after the avalanche, the sun is blaring off of the fresh snow. He can't see a thing. So Hannah tells her boys to go get her brother, Marius. She works quickly. She stokes up the fire and begins to cut the clothes off of him because they're frozen to him. His toes are frozen together. His legs showed advanced frostbite. They asked where he came from, and they knew his answer was a lie because his tracks came from the opposite direction, which meant he wasn't a Nazi because a Nazi wouldn't have to lie. All right. Mm-hmm. So they know that this this guy is, is, not, is not a germ. They move him to the barn so that nobody else would be able to see him. The Germans wouldn't find him there. Um, uh, Marius, the owner of the farm, goes out and has to cover the tracks because this is, again, it's a small community. People are going to notice, hey, this is different. What's going on here? You got somebody here hiding out? So now it's April 8th. He's been on the run for a week. After a few days of working on his uh, frozen feet, they conceive of a plan to transfer him, transport him from Furaflatan, where the house is, to an abandoned cabin in Revdal across the fjord. They need to figure out how to do this quickly because each night is becoming noticeably longer. You know, it's the Arctic. It's yeah. way up north. It's going to be light 24-7 now. So they got to do this quickly before it's too dangerous to travel even at night. Uh, so they put them on a stretcher. They sneak past the German garrison, literally under the windows, across the street, down to the um, boat and get them across, into, um, across the fjord over to Revdal. There's this 7x10 cabin that they put them in. There's nothing in it. It's just a table. They lay him on the table, give him a couple of supplies. He sarcastically calls it the Savoy Hotel, <laughs> after a ritzy hotel in, in London, and Mary's promises to return in two, two to three days. It was decided that they need to get Jan 3,000 feet up the mountain to the plateau and across over to the town of Mandel on the other side. But communication here is tricky. The phones are going to be all tapped. There's no road going into Mandau, all right? So the only way to get there is to get a message by boat. That means extra fuel. Then if you need extra fuel, then why do you need extra fuel? What are you you doing? People are gonna start to ask questions, okay? So Marius has a contact. His name is Herod Legland. He's part of the resistance organization in Tromsoy. The resistance will be able to provide funds to get all the supplies that they need, all right? So that's all set. Marius returns to the cabin, finds Jan in relatively good spirits. He's explained what the plan is, that they're going to go up the plateau, they're going to meet men up there, he's going to go down to Mandel, everything should be good. I'll be back in two days, and we'll get ready to travel. But after he leaves, Jan starts to feel this steadily increasing pain in, in his feet, mm. okay? His toes are, are gray and black, and if he tries to rub them, the skin just peel, oh. peels off. Sorry, it's kind of... And this foul smelling liquid oozed out. So gangrene is setting in. He had a hard time sleeping and was even more anxious for Marius to return. However, two days pass, three days, mm. four days, unspeakable pain. He, he, he's worried that Marius was found out, captured, or, or worse. But what's happened is it's just been another storm. All right. They can't cross to reach him. And it actually takes five days before they can safely cross over uh, to help him. When they get there, they're alarmed. They open up the door and the pungent smell of decay oh. and no response from Jan made them think the worst has happened. They check on him. He's alive, but he's delirious. Hadn't eaten in days because he knocked the food off the table. He can't walk, so he can't reach the food. He thought he had blood poisoning, so he had cut his legs to oh. try and bleed out the, the uh, bad blood. Oh. So they, they pack him up the best they can. Again, they say, the plan is all set. Um, we'll be back, and that's when we're going to go up the plateau. Uh, they dispatch a messenger to the nomadic Lap people. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them. They're in no, northern, not, no, they're in northern Finland. They're they're mm-hmm. kind of like Eskimos. Uh, they called and, and they live in Lapland, the northern part of Finland, Sweden, all the way. And they are reindeer herders. Okay, okay. Yeah. So they're thinking that they're going to be the best bet to get him across into the Swedish border because they're accustomed to travel on top of this plateau in in this weather. Okay, so Marius is trying to figure out how we're gonna get him up the mountain. He can't walk, what are we gonna do? And and this is to me one of the most amazing uh, parts of the story. So they're gonna have a sled built, but the guy who builds the sled works as the caretaker at the house, which as I remind you is where the Germans are all housed. So underneath the Germans' nose, He builds a sled but never puts it together. He never assembles it. He builds all the parts. They bundle it up. When it's time to travel back to Jan, they carry it in the bundles down to the river. There's a German sentry there. He thinks nothing of it. In fact, he comes over and helps them to lower the bundles (laughs) down into the boat. Okay? So now Marius has got three men to help him out. They cross over, build the sled, goes together flawlessly. It's, it's unbelievable how somebody can make something without putting it together, test fit and whatnot, and it works. Do you know how many pieces there were together? I, don't, I don't know. I don't know that.
2: Just the fact that you're bringing bundles and then actually have one of the…
0: And it's, it's just the, the extent to which these strangers are helping him. Yes. You know, just blatantly helping this man and sympathizing with him and putting their own lives in danger. It's just it's one right
1: after the next, right, right. under their noses. Though, like you yes. said, yeah, and, and but it, it shows how people are unified against this evil. Yeah, right, right. They they know how bad the Nazis are, how they treat people, um, and they still risk their lives to help the, this. The common know. language you said. I mean, in many cases, they can't even like verbalize,
0: you know, yes. other elements. But it's that it's that empathy through you know
1: being against the Nazis. Okay, so they have all their supplies together. Marius picked three men uh, to help him with this climb up the mountain. Um, now, under normal circumstances, this is a dangerous climb, but they're doing it during winter. All right, this is this is beyond difficult. Which, by the way, it actually took place this time of year, end of March, beginning of April. Right, so they had to take their time going up this mountain, three thousand feet. They've got a length of rope, sixty feet. Two men would go ahead pull the sled up, and then the next leg would, would happen. So they keep repeating this process. The side of the mountain was steep with portions that were nearly vertical. Marius had picked his team for their patience and their strength, knowing it would be such a, an incredibly difficult task. They came to a sheer rock face. They had to traverse around it. To do that, they had to have three men holding the sled level with one ski running along the oh. snow. Right, going around it. They finally get to the top but it's taking them hours longer than they were expecting. And they're looking for the team from Mandel. There's no sign of them. They're calling out. They don't see any tracks. Did they go to the wrong place? Did they not understand where they were supposed to be? They're looking around. Can't find them. Now what do they do? They're, they're really ha- they really have a dilemma. Do they take him back down the mountain? Which is going to be... This was painful for him. You know, His, his feet are in tough shape. They decide that they're going to leave them up there. They find a rock that the wind had carved out the snow around them. They lower them down into there, give them food, uh, brandy, blankets, um, and hopefully the Mandel men are going to be coming up. They're they're not happy mm-hmm. about this, but th- this is the best thing because they got to get back before they're missed in their own in their own town, which I didn't even think about. That's true. You know, yeah, the amount of time that they're gone. So the other team from Mandel did get the word, and they were ready to set out. But just as they're about to do it, a boat comes into sight with a party of Germans and docked. They had never seen a German, let alone a German boat, since the (laughs) beginning of the war. Remember, this town is remote. There's no roads going to it. This is the only way to to get there. They have no idea why they're there. It's a small town of 600 people. To this day, nobody knows why the Germans were dispatched there. So Herr Nordenes who's the contact in Mandel realizes we got to get up the mountain um, to save this guy because we know he's up there. But again, a storm comes in. They can't make the climb. They can't do it in front of the Germans because they could see the whole way up the -hmm. the top and not knowing exactly where he was and the storm raging. They can only see a few feet in front of him. it, It would be suicide. He's up there for three days exposed um, when they finally got up there, they can't find him.
0: <laughs> of all course right? they can't. He, <laughs> right.
1: He's completely covered in, in in snow. The the fresh snow had covered all the tracks. They searched for two hours calling out. They had a password. Hello, gentlemen. And no, no sign of them. They have to go back down again. If they're gone too long, they're going to be missed. Right. They go up a fourth time. Nothing. Still can't find him. So the only way to contact Marius is to contact the guy in Tromsoy, who's going to get word to Marius. By the time Marius gets the word, he's been up at the top of that mountain for seven days.
2: Oh my gosh!
1: And it's remarkable that they're, they're still trying. Yeah, they still assume yeah. he's alive and that yeah. they should continue to well, pursue this. Marius right. is convinced. He thinks that yeah. there's no way that, that you, you cannot survive this, especially okay. in the shape he was up. He was I know. in going up. Right. Yes. So, Marius and his future wife, a woman named Agneth Olaf, they decide to climb up the plateau in the mission of retrieving his body. Mm. Um, they get up there, they dig through the three feet of snow. Um, Marius says, Agneth, don't look. And with that, he stirs and says, I'm not dead. What? How he survived, nobody knows. Okay. The only thing we can figure out is the snowstorm covered him. He was able to keep the snow off his face, and a cavity formed around him, which actually protected him from the elements. It's kind of in his own little igloo. Okay, what like happened during the avalanche? Right, right. So he's there for a week in a wet sleeping bag, frozen solid. You know, his his feet are a mess, and it's it, it's unbelievable. They get the Mandel man. To come back up he leaves a marker a ski pole with a, a flag on it and they were able to find him so they get him on a sled they try for 16 hours the Mandel men to travel across the plateau they can't do it, it it's it's too it's too difficult uh, for them to do it that's why they wanted to contact the lap people because they're used to that right exposure yeah. uh, to being in those elements so they go back and they find a fissure um, in in the rocks it's just like not a cave, but it's like a little crevasse that they, they put him in. And they kind of build a snow wall in, in front of him. So he ends up staying there for three more weeks. Three I weeks? thought you were going to say three days. No, I thought he was going to say three, three hours. hours. Three weeks. <laughs> three, he's, he's been out in the elements for three weeks, 350 miles in the Arctic Circle. His clothes were constantly wet. He had very little food. His legs below his knees were frozen solid. It was during that time he realized he needed to prevent the gang green from spreading. He's by himself. He takes his pocket knife and removes his toes.
2: Oh, my.
1: Okay. He's visited almost daily by the people from Mandel. They come in always calling out the passcode. Hello, gentlemen, before entering shelter. Um, But the urgency to convince the lapse becomes even more pressing because a German patrol passes within 60 feet of where he is again, luck is on his side. They, they never notice him. All right, I don't know whether that's a quality of the low-grade soldiers that they have there, or just the Germans not knowing what to look for. They're not Norwegian. They're not used to being in that Arctic Maybe just uh, not situation. expecting Maybe. to find yeah. anybody. Exactly. You know, and, yeah, true. Yeah. Um, now, he survived all this thing, all this unbelievable trials. Now the only th- thing that saves him is his weakness he's he's at the end he, he's I, I've got nothing else and the only thing that saves him is the fact that he can't operate his pistol he's not strong enough to cycle around his hands are frostbitten he can't pull the trigger that's the only thing that saves him now
0: and it's remarkable because I'm I'm the next thing I'm thinking of is the mental ability to continue on after all of this yeah I can't fathom and I don't think can can anyone blame no. him.
2: I know.
1: No. I mean, you must. Any human must reach a breaking point. Absolutely, right. absolutely. But how did it happen at that point when he can't do anything yeah. about yeah. it? So finally, they get confirmation by one of the uh, Lap people. Now they, their culture is they can't promise to do something because you know, can you promise to take him to the Swedish border? Their culture is, I, I can't promise to do that. I mean, he might die on the way. And then I then I break my promise. Mm. So that's that's kind of a cultural barrier. But they finally convince uh, one of the laps to do this. Um, he's paid in brandy, tobacco, coffee, blankets. And after two days of being pulled by a sled by a reindeer, <laughs> all right, Jan sees this flat, frozen lake. And he's realizing that that's Lake... Kilpi I'm really proud that I was able to pronounce I'm impressed. that one. Um, but that lake meant the other side was Sweden. They're there. But with that, they hear a rifle shot. Down the slope comes six Germans on skis after them. Jan yells out, get on, get on, for God's sake, move. Pulls out his pistol. The laps don't speak Norwegian. They have their own mm-hmm. language. Understand finally what's going on. They take their whole herd and they start. They make a break for the border and they're able to get there. They, oh. they get them to safety. Shots are flying over their head, but they make it. So Jan arrives at the hospital. They finally get him there. There he's airlifted out by a, a seaplane that had to make a pretty treacherous landing. They had to clear away some ice in order for it to land in this remote area. He weighs eighty pounds. Oh my gosh! When he, when he's in the hospital. Um, the doctors say that by removing his own toes, they saved the rest of his feet. It took six months for him to make a full recovery. While he was there, he was allowed to talk to a secretary from the Norwegian embassy, and Jan dictated the whole story about what happened. But they still have to be careful because although Sweden was neutral, there's sure to be German uh, agents mm-hmm. uh, around there. Um, and if details got out, that's it. it uh, you know, the Germans are going to go after those people that, that helped him. He finally returns to England to his unit, which is called the Ling Company, by the way, where um, he worked to learn how to walk again in hopes of returning to Norway, which he did. At the time the Germans surrendered, he was on an active mission in Norway. (laughs) Can you imagine? He went back. Uh, It it just blows my mind. Um, But during his recovery, he's haunted by not knowing what happened to the people who helped him. Did his freedom come at the cost of people's lives? Um, And in in actuality, Not one of the families who helped Jan escape were discovered. There were no punishments handed out. Unfortunately, though, the rest of his team were all tortured and shot. Mm. Uh, Their bodies were exhumed after the war to bring uh, war crimes, charges against the Germans who were responsible. Jan ended up getting married to an American woman named Evie. They had a very happy life together. He died in December of 1988. Oh, my goodness. You can read about his story in the book, We Die Alone. Uh, or you could watch the movie uh, on Netflix called Twelfth Man. Um, there was another movie based on We Die Alone uh, that was actually, I, I can't remember what year it was done, but it was nominated for the Oscar for a foreign film and was uh, elected as the best Norwegian film of all time. So Now, is he is he like a
0: national figure in Norway? I mean, I, is this-
1: yeah, because his trail that he the path that he took for his escape is all marked. Mm -hmm. You can hike it uh, during the two months that uh, there's not snow covering everything. Um, And in fact, two Norwegian commandos attempted it during the winter when he made his escape storm hit, they had to be airlifted out. They couldn't make it. Isn't that that's amazing.
2: So, I mean, we've had this conversation in past episodes, but what is it, that that is his will to survive? What, I mean, is it just that alone? Is there anything deeper than that? Is it, is it something like, I mean, is it patriotism? Is it a uh, faith? Is it uh just a, the wanting to get back home? Like what, how could somebody
1: have the will to endure such? I, I think that's, crazy. A, that's It's a difficult question to ask. And it's something that we can't even tell ourselves unless you're in that yeah. situation. Dealing with that, you don't know what you're capable of doing.
2: And how the heck did you you figure out how to cut your own toes off without causing blood loss? And I, I mean, know. and that's what ended up saving his life.
1: Yeah, I I I don't know. And yes. on,
0: on top of that, you go back on another mission yep. after all of that, right? Yep.
1: Yeah, so he he's definitely a national hero. Um, you know, during his escape, word got out to people. And he actually used his wounded toe in, in the early parts as kind of a proof. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm Jan Belserud. Mm-hmm. Oh is, my gosh, my toe has been shot off.
2: You wow. Know. I mean, talk about so many surprising elements through a story from you know the very beginning to the end. Uh, th- this has been uh, this has
0: been eye-opening to say the least. Now, when you came in and you said this is an amazing story, you certainly <laughs> delivered on that, Tim. <laughs>
1: Well, that, that's phenomenal. I, I, I'm glad to 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 bring it to you guys. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It's a story that I never heard, but I think it's an important one for people to hear.
2: 100% agreed. And well, I think thank you.
1: the next thing to do is
0: is find your third story to share with us. Okay. That, that's the next thing to do. And, um, you know, I, before we go, Phil, I just want to mention to everyone, uh, we are working on uh, getting the website, doing a, a website launch, uh, some merchandise and apparel. Um, that that will be available to our listeners. Um, Just stay tuned and and follow us on social media as you guys have been doing, which has been great. And again, thanks to to Tim Field for joining us today. And I think um, just a a great story with so many different great human elements to
1: it. Well, thanks for having me in here, guys. It's always a pleasure. Oh, it's our pleasure too.
2: Thank you for joining us. Until next
1: time, I'm Phil Horinder. I'm Phil Schaaf. And I'm Tim Field. And another chapter has been added to the History Textbooks.